The Movie Morgue podcast is made possible through the support of our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you like what we do on the show and would like to find a way to support us, please go to patreon.com slash jessicaonmain. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it will haunt you. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, welcome to the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Jess Whitmore. And I'm your co-host and producer, Annie. And today we'll be covering season two of The Umbrella Academy, made for television by Steve Blackman, as they frequently remind me. (laughs) So, uh, context, fuck. Actually, flashback, I think we might have done an episode on the first one because I remember talking about the comic vaguely. Are you sure that it wasn't just us talking amongst ourselves? Like, does that conversation not ring a bell, Annie? I don't know. I don't know. I It could have been. Who knows? It's it's a pandemic. It doesn't matter. Time doesn't exist anymore. Nope. Thanks. Time doesn't exist. If Thanks. we haven't made an episode about the first season, maybe we will. Yeah. Maybe we won't. Maybe it'll be lost to the fucking time flow. I don't fucking know. Who knows? Um, cool. So real context. Uh, Annie, do you have much context for this? I had never Sorry. heard of the Umbrella Academy before season one, um, but I have become a pretty solid fan since the series first came out, and my favorite characters are Klaus and Allison. They're very good. Um, so I had read the comics back in the day, you know, like internet piracy and all that. <laughs> Um, up until, I think, the first uh, White Violin arc. Uh, so I was familiar with them. I actually had no idea they were done by Gerard Way back in the day. Okay. Um, so I've been very ex- I was very excited when it was first announced and pleasantly surprised by the first season. So all in all, I'd say it's solid and I am very excited to like it was good. It was good. Which is surprising because I wasn't expecting. I swear to God, Annie, we've talked about this on the show because, like, I remember talking about like the compromise between like Gorilla Luther and like actual head cut off stuck on a Gorilla Luther. Maybe we did. You know what's going to happen? Somebody in the Discord is going to be like, "Of course, you guys talked about this in episode such and such," and then I'm going to feel like an idiot for not remembering anything ever. That's okay. My brain is Swiss cheese. I got therapy now. It's all good. Yay! So I guess, fuck it. I'm gonna give this one. I'm gonna give this one an A. It's almost an A plus, but I feel like there's some slight deficiencies, and there's a lot more shortcuts being taken in this season. Yeah, that tracks for me as well. Um, like I just don't think they have quite the budget that they want for this season. What about okay. you, Annie? Interesting. I'll be. Uh, looking forward to hearing you talk more about what you mean by that. Because I also feel like this is just short of an A+, and I can't really put my finger on why. And I think you know that I prefer to have, you know, like a, a discrete set of reasons why I'm giving something a grade. It's probably just the college educator in me. Uh, but this time I can't really put a finger on it. So I'm looking forward to talking about some of this stuff with you because the first season was definitely an A plus for me. And I do really like this season and it's got a lot of great stuff in it. Well, for one thing, I think it's definitely the budget. You can see a lot more constraint. Um, compare, for example, the Istanbul fight from season one to the boardroom slaughter in season two. Oh, yeah. Um, there's this sense that there's a lot 
less detailed camera work and that there's a lot more like shortcuts and hiding choreography off screen. Um, the other thing is also there's like some of the effects have gotten better, but they've also gotten a little bit more overused. Yeah. yeah. Um, like mm -hmm. the, the, um, the, I heard a rumor effect is really creepy. And I think that's a really good improvement on that's that. That's an one. upgrade. However, um, the, uh, Vanya effects with the sound and the light, those feel very sci-fi channel right now. Yeah. And like it kind of worked in season one because it, there's this huge build up to it and it was there. And it worked great, for example, like in the FBI building, like that had a very much X-Files kind of like big flashing lights kind of vibe to it. But when, you know, she's at the farmhouse and she's just floating in the sky and she's got a glowing thing in her chest, like it felt very cheap. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think another thing is I feel like they're relying a little bit on fan buy-in um, in the the actors are still incredibly charismatic. I just think the writing suffered a little bit, uh, especially I think Klaus is a really good case study in this because if you look at the first one, he's carrying that whole um, burnout druggy nihilist thing purely on his own performance. Um, but in season two, you come back and he's kind of just like everyone's telling me him how much of a Bernie drug out he is. Yeah. I mean, they do have one yeah. sequence later on in the season when Klaus is kind of goes on a bit of a bender. Um, but I yeah, I have to say, I feel like some of the writing suffered this season. And I think that's where some of my scruples actually lie, because some of the characterization feels a tiny bit stale and... Yeah, we'll continue to talk about that. Yeah. I think if I think I had to actually pin something down, I think this season feels a little bit padded. Mm-hmm. That's my thing, mm -hmm. I think. Um, because you have a lot of stuff that feels kind of slow, especially like I think some of the stuff with the director or the handler rather. Oh. And some of the stuff with the cult is very like, okay, we're padding for screen time. <laughs> um okay. Because, like, um, I, I think, like, a good example is where, you know, um, Klaus is doing his yoga in, you know, like, the little, I don't know what it's called. I, I'm i going to call it because that's how it's going to be. But I feel bad about calling it a yogi diaper. <laughs> it works for him, okay? Um, but, you know, you have that sequence where he's doing that. He's having a conversation with Ben. And then he's going into them to say I'm a fraud and then they're doing the oh his name is Robert Paulson also Spartacus bit like that felt very stretched out like that felt much longer than it had to be and in general the cult doesn't actually matter no I mean they're not really a plot mover they're there almost entirely for comedic effect in some ways yeah so like there's a little bit of character development with Ben which Ben kind of needed but like you could have put that with anyone mm -hmm. it's it's really just a joke it's like haha what would klaus do in 1960s oh yeah he'd be a fucking oh yeah cult i know leader. he's obviously a cult leader um but yeah no it feels very much like the punchline to a joke rather than a character development moment even though klaus is hopelessly bored and seeking any means of escape from the cult i feel like stuff pretty much could have been cut off after that first sequence where he runs away from them and tells Ben to start the car or to get in the car or something. 
I'm not going to lie. I was expecting him to summon an army at some point. So was I. I think there are some things in this season that have been kind of left open for the third series. Um, And I think that's one of those things. There are also some things about Vanya's powers that we didn't know before that we received hints of um, that haven't fully been materialized in the series. So I think a lot of it is building towards a third series. Oh yeah, no, no, no. The, the 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 cliffhanger for season three is very exciting. Yes. Um, I've actually like one thing I liked about this, and like some people I don't think find this as charming as I do, is this series was this season. I've been watching too much British TV. This series was. Too- oh no! Did I say it too? <laughs> um, yeah. No, no. I think that was just me. Um, but this season was very callable in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like you were on Facebook with me when I was watching some of this, and. You could call things very, like, and I think this is a strength of writing. It's not that the plot is not complicated enough that you can't figure it out without a PhD and a pile of (laughs) um, Agatha Christie books, you know? It's like, no, it's just they give you the information to put together what you need to know pretty much exactly 60 seconds before something happens. Uh And I think it's a really good quality to have in screenwriting. Like, I think the bones are fine. It's just they made it too long. That's just my kind of vibe to it. Like, I called, like, yeah, no, Reggie is going to kill all of the Illuminati. And I called that he would be alive in the future. And it, it's it's good because I really like it when I get that sense with a series or with a film. Um, like, I think my favorite example of that would be um, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Yeah. Where it just feels, it feels like you synchronize and you embed yourself and you just you have a resonance with the film or with a piece of media. And I got a lot of that in this. Yeah, same. And it's a very different feeling than predictability, right? We've all been in a movie where we feel like we can predict all the plot twists and just all the fun gets sucked out of it for some reason for us. Um, With this movie, yeah, you're right. It really does feel like you're just kind of in sync with the plot line. And also, I have to say, with the characters, um, one of the things that I did appreciate about the cult sequence or the cult sequences with Klaus was all of the song lyrics that he kept referencing as this kind of deep, <laughs> eternal wisdom. <laughs> uh, the waterfalls references. See, I, I, I find that especially I find that cute, but I also find it like a little hackneyed. It's like, oh yeah, uh, time traveler does uh, quotes. Like it was a lot funnier when Taco did it on the Adventure Zone. You mm. know, it's just like it's cute. But it's not that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, to each their own. I guess that appealed to the childishness in me. Um, so actually, here's here's <laughs> an interesting thing I want to talk about. Um, I kind of want to rate. I kind of want to place like just look at the Umbrella Academy, look at each member, and kind of see like where they are in this season, and just compare it with the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I guess let's go by numbers. Number one, Luther. I think stronger in the first season. I think so, too. Um, In the second season, we get to see a lot of the uh, social awkwardness of Luther, as well as just his kind of willingness to take punishment um, just to feel something. And that was, oh, that was really kind of sad. But yeah, most of the emotional development for Luther as a character happens in season one. Season one is really where we're introduced to him. 
and his exile on the moon. Um, so yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, season one Luther is about pain, betrayal, and neglect. Yes. Season two Luther is kind of about maladjustment. Yes. Um, yeah. And honestly, like, the biggest beat they try to have really falls flat with me. The whole, like, oh, no, oh, my sister girlfriend is married. I'm Please hit me so I can feel pain. That's a bit much. <laughs> it, that did not land to me. Also, like, the, the Jack Ruby stuff didn't really seem to actually go anywhere. No, it didn't. It was just kind of another thing that sort of tied into the JFK assassination. Which I think is another issue with doing a historical event of this nature that is so well-known um, both in American folklore and conspiracy theories as well as just like in the American mainstream. There's a real tendency to try and slot things in. And I'd actually be curious to see what the differences between the comic and the uh, season were because there were there were things that were brought up that kind of led nowhere and then there were other things that I felt were focused on in ways that were much stronger like the sit-in um, and some of that stuff okay um sure so I mean also I think Tom Hopper does a really good job as Luther um I I think the main problem is he had a very, I'm not going to say complete, but a very satisfying arc in the first season. And he's kind of, he's playing the straight man, which he really does not have, I think, the credibility to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's kind of a lovable goof, mm-hmm. which I like. I like having him around. It's just <laughs> not, I think, the kind of character development we necessarily want to see out of him. No, it was the kind of character development that I just sort of, like, enjoyed in the moment. Like, I like his scene with Allison at the barbecue place where he's eating. Um, there's just a lot going on with Luther in terms of gesture in this season that I really sort of picked up on. I like the social awkwardness and social anxiety in his character where he really does not know how to adjust to change. And I think characterizing this season's arc as his failure to adjust is a really great way to talk about that, Jess. Um, yeah, it was no, mostly I mean, played for comedic a, effect, kind of though. Thing. It wasn't the same as season one. Yeah. So one thing that I kind of see in this is it does kind of feel realistic in a yes. sense. That he's kind of reached a point of not making an effort. Like, the whole, like, oh, sorry, that's my barbecue. This is also my barbecue. Like, like you know, the, like, depression eating yes. kind of thing. <laughs> the sad boy um, snacks. It does feel, I think, kind of realistic in that this is him coping and kind of hitting a block in terms of his own progress. However, what is realistic and what is relatable is not necessarily the same as what is engaging storytelling. Exactly. Like, it's a holding pattern. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is. Makes me wonder what might be happening for him in season three. How do you feel about number two? Diego. I have very mixed feelings about season two, Diego. Um, there are a lot of things that I liked about him in season one that kind of translated over. Um I mean, the main thing for him is that he kind of represents the fight part of the fight or flight instinct. And I really like that about him. Uh, I love the character design for him in season one. Season two, um, <laughs> I I don't know how else to characterize his look other than a kind of like Jesus beard. 
uh, which I found visually sort of distracting because it looked, his hair looked like a wig to me. So that was, uh, yeah, anyway, I got lost in the visual cues. I like his relationship with Lila. I think it's complicated and messy. I don't know if he has the same emotional beats that he has in season one. Again, it's a slightly more comedic take on the character. Um, so yeah, just kind of mixed feelings in general. So he- here's my thought. Um, I think Diego is stronger overall in season two, but he has much higher peaks in season one. Um, in terms of like emotional resonance and so on, like I, I feel like his baseline is much more engaging. Um, Lila is a much better foil than Patch. Patch sucked. Like, and, like, it's nothing wrong with the actress, really. or like, It's just, like, the character was barely written yeah, at all. Yeah, no, it's not the actor, it's um, the writing. Yeah, so Lila brings a lot more meat to the table, and he has a lot more to play off of. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think we quite reach the same um, peaks that we do in season one, for example, with uh, the death of Grace, yes. for example. Yeah, which is heartbreaking. Um, and, But I will say one thing I really enjoyed is... Um, his kind of overall thrust in season two is this idea that, like, yeah, you say you're rejecting dad, but you're kind of accepting his message wholesale. Yes, and Diego learning that. Um, and also there's a lot more goofiness that I like to him. The whole Team Zero thing is so funny. Team Zero. I love it. It's so hilarious. Um, which, honestly, if I wanted to, like, really dive into that, it's kind of like an aesthetic rebrand without confronting the actual thing. It's like, yeah, we're the kids and we hate the old man. Diego is all about avoidance. So that is like peak Diego. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice. And also, like, he gets a little bit less warped in this season. Like, he actually gets to do some stuff. He does. And I think his chemistry with Lila, like, if I had to pick one person who is more of a standout, it definitely would be Lila. Not just because she's a new character who's been introduced, but I think her chemistry with him in a lot of their scenes makes this a very entertaining season to watch in some ways and um sort of like the way that she's introduced to us and a lot of the familial conflicts that she has are uh they they kind of parallel diego's in so many different ways that you are right like she is a much better foil for him than what we saw in season one yeah where diego I think kind of has, you know, resistance and defiance in aesthetics, um, but has internalized the core of like, you know, you guys are the heroes, you guys are the Umbrella Academy, you're great people who are going to save the world. While, you know, kind of like having a really sideways relationship with Hargreaves' abuse. We'll get to Hargreaves. Jesus fuck. Oh, yeah. Um, Where Lila has accepted the aesthetics of her mother's abuse while internalizing her conniving and backsbiting. Right. Right, yeah. Um, so they're kind of, like, very much, like, you know, yin and yang. Oh, yeah, no, they're, they're exactly Horribly abused in imagery. Yeah. So let's talk about Allison. Let's talk about number three, and let's talk about Emmy Raver-Lampman. And first of all, she looks amazing. Just fuck. Just jaw-droppingly so gorgeous the whole season. She looks fantastic. 
I kind of hate her. She has amazing hips. I, I'm not. I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> she does. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, but no. Um, so, where would you put her now versus in season one? In season one, we see Allison really kind of using her powers to get what she wants, to bend other people to her will. And there's sort of this arc that, you know, what she has isn't really something that she deserves. It's something that she's kind of claimed for herself using these powers. Um, it's obviously more complicated than that, but but yeah, that's the basic gist of it. And it all sort of comes to a head in this conflict with Vanya, and I think there's been a lot of change and growth from that narrative arc to this one. Uh, it seems like Allison is taking a different path this time. She's, you know, been thrust into a different period and she minimizes the use of her powers. Instead, she is doing the very difficult work of working with people. Um, that can be really hard, especially as we see in some of the scenes in the beauty parlor where, you know, sometimes you're working with people who's interests don't always align perfectly so um we see a lot of that and she's doing the necessary work to do grassroots organizing which is incredibly difficult we get to see some of her courage and bravery really showcased particularly in the sequence about the sit-in and its aftermath um i think we also get to see just her relationship with her siblings as they they come to see her and and how the sort of complications and fallout from all of this i i she's just such a wonderful actress i think this is a very strong season so i'd say i think she's a stronger character in season one but she's a stronger plot element in season two okay um because one thing is despite like a lot of the chaos and like you know her relationship with ray is great and the kind of conflict that they have is very compelling um that's kind of her main note in this one um whereas in the first season it's about her life kind of falling apart it's about her mistakes catching up with her and it's about this kind of rolling cascade of disasters in her life yeah and it culminates in interpersonal drama like with the fucking i heard a rumor shwing with Vanya, mm -hmm. that shit, that moment makes your heart fucking stop. Oh, yeah. That's good shit. I don't feel like you necessarily have that same inside the team drama with her uh, this season, but also she ties in very well, and she has these really amazing scenes. Like I said, the sit-in, the barbershop, the running away from the white boys when yes. she gets back to 1962. Yep. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff in there. But I think what it comes down to is because this is a series about trauma, about neglect, and about abuse, having her be in such a stable and well-adjusted place does not play well to the character drama. Um, the mo like the best arc she has in this, I think, is the what did you say to him arc. And the problem is that does kind of get resolved very cleanly, even if we have a couple of episodes where it's like, yeah, I, you know, you wouldn't say the thing. Like, it's just a little too neat and tidy, I think. Okay. Um, let's talk about number five. Number five is interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's doing a lot. He's doing, um, he's doing the most, really. <laughs> it's hard to, I think he is one of the standouts in both seasons, 
he's he's a little bit more, I guess more Mimi in this one. He's a little bit funnier. Oh yeah. He had definitely had more action chops in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Like I don't know necessarily how to compare. Like this one's actually kind of difficult. Yeah, no, I think it is difficult. Wait, no, we skip we skip Klaus. We skip Klaus. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Okay. Of course we did. Well, let's talk about five. We've already started. We'll talk we? about five and we'll go back to Klaus. Yeah. Um so I one of the things that I think is great about the way that Five's character is established in season one is they really kind of play up the extreme isolation and his sort of mental grasping at connectivity throughout all of that. There's a lot more of a of a tragic quality to Five in season one, as well as a lot more of like the centering of violence as an inherent part of his story. I think this season you're right that it's a lot more humorous, which I really appreciated. Um, I, you know, childish as it is, I found all the gags with the sort of like time paradox thing to be very funny. Um, Maybe that's just where I am. But I really like that. I like him screaming, I'm the daddy at Luther in the alley. I think that was great. Um, (laughs) and you know trying to kind of corral his ragtag group of siblings together so that they don't destroy the world a second time Uh, so I have a lot of things that I like it's a very different conflict yeah it's a different conflict I think that's the other reason why I'm so accepting of these versions of these characters over you know like season one versus season two is because I see it as a expansion on their storylines and I really sort of see that with five we get to see a lot more of his silliness um the violence is definitely still there but there's a bit more silliness and improvisation that we kind of get to see in this season that I liked. I'm trying to think about what's going on with Five because it's it's hard to qualify. I feel like he's probably the closest to him between seasons, I think, of any of the characters. Yeah. Whereas I feel like there's these very distinct phases where you can say, here's Klaus in season one, here's Klaus in season two, and they're in very different places. Five is in a fairly similar place, and it makes it harder to compare. Um, I think that the writing maybe serves him a little bit more weekly. Um, what uh, what with the budget problems and the fight sequences being done differently. Okay. So were there budget um, issues like, with the season? Not that I'm aware of. This is just me making conjecture from what I've seen of the show. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Like the way they've done the fights. Because there, there's two. Well, first of all, I think they. I'm not sure that they finished filming before the pandemic. I remember that was like because that was a concern. I, I, that I, I, I had. don't know enough about the production. Yeah, because remember that first trailer that came out where it's just like it was all of them like socially distancing, dancing. It was just the actors, not the characters. Yes. That to me kind of clues me in to say like either that they had production interruptions with the pandemic, or that they were just playing into it. Yeah. Um, but either way, like. Just TV executives being TV executives and Netflix being Netflix. I don't think they had as much budget as they did in the first thing. Okay. Um, so there are two things that will kill um, productions. Budget and time. Right. And I feel like they might not have had as much time to develop this season as they did the first season. Yeah, that's also entirely possible. We know that's been a problem for other Netflix series. But yeah, I mean, for all its yeah. flaws, I think we both definitely still enjoyed it a lot. 
Oh no, absolutely. I I loved it. It's just a question of like, I'm ho- also there is. I'm hoping season three is last season, and I'm hoping it's a fucking blowout. Yeah, same. Because five is going to age out very quickly. Yes. But um, I will say that Aiden Gallagher kills it. Just absolutely kills it. Um, I think in the end, I like season one five more. Because mm. season one five is more proactive, where season two five is a little bit more reactive. Um, season one five comes in, he's got this firm idea, the apocalypse is here, why won't you fuckers listen to me, I've got a mission, and also he has that really great, was it Dolores the dummy? I, I it was a D name. that's the name, I, I think that's right, yeah. Sorry, I didn't rewatch the first season. I didn't either. But that was a really great thing, and you had this really great arc of him, you know, basically putting away his security blanket. Yeah. Um... Whereas in season two, it's like, okay, cool, we have the apocalypse. Um, how do we solve this? No one is listening to me. I need to herd these cats. Yes. Um, but briefly, I do want to talk a little bit about Old Five. Mm, yeah, good idea. Okay. How do we feel about Old Five, played here by Sean Sullivan? Um, I feel like there was much more enigma to him in the first season which gave him more gravitas, where he's very wide-eyed and kind of bewildered and a little goofy in the second season, and that plays with the kind of comedy they're going for, but it kind of goes against, I think, the tone they have for the commission and the whole, like, time assassin thing, where it's, like, this very hard-faced, um, like, it's somewhat absurd trappings, but very grim and very practical no frills kind of thing um and like there that that does feed back into the comic as well uh some of the most iconic images that i can remember from the comic are of five's face because he's this like adorable tiny little boy and he has this just like dead-eyed fucking fierce angry fierce intense expression and that was like kind of his image Mm -hmm. so the fact that and, like, that was kind of the original... Um, so, to go to Hazel and Cha-Cha for a second. In the comics, um, they were very different. Um, they're much more grim in the uh, series, much more business-like, and I think that was a very good change to make. But in the comics, um, they were kind of horrifying because the whole thing is they had those ridiculous, funny-looking masks, but they were just delightful and glorifying and just playing in the violence. They'd be like, I'm going to chainsaw your foot off. <laughs> that was the kind of aesthetic that they went for. So there was this sense that in there, the commission was this madhouse. And that Five was like the straight man from there. Because, you know, you had the fucking fish head guy. You had Hazel and Chacha. You had people appearing in briefcases as these very obvious, like, man in black kind of figures. Mm-hmm. So you've got something very different in this incarnation of the commission where the commission is very straight-laced and business and serious. So I feel like Five has kind of fallen out of that aesthetic, especially with all like the farting and the fighting. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's really goofy. I don't know. What, what do you think of old Five? Because like, he, he, he seems like a clueless boomer, much less than like oh, the world's no, greatest old Oh, no, I totally agree with you. Yeah, no, I, I think... 
I think that they have played up the absurd elements in this season to the detriment of season one. I think I'm just accepting of it because of the sheer ridiculousness of the current situation in which we find ourselves. Um, But I, I agree with you. I think there's a massive tone adjustment in season two. There's a lot more focus on the sort of funny bits in here. And... Um, you know, there's a really sort of like surrealist humor that's at play at times. Um, and I'm just, I'm wondering it's what's really going to happen because it gets three. sillier. Yeah, it does. It gets sillier throughout yeah, the season. It's really, it's really weird that it gets sillier when it's the season that does a civil rights sit in. Uh, yes. That's a weird tone to strike. Yes, it is a weird tone. Because like, that's also, I think something that was, I think kind of a weird incongruence because um anytime you approach the civil rights the humor fucking goes the fuck away because you don't want to be fucking making fart jokes on the fucking grave of mlk you don't want to be doing that shit but at the same time it's like yeah okay the rest of this is goofy as shit yeah, and it's not really like they were cracking all of these jokes during sequences dealing directly with Jim Crow and the civil rights movement um, or treating that material in a way that was disrespectful or unthoughtful because I think they actually handled those sequences very well. But I, I do agree that it's a very oddly toned season. Uh, and there are all these shifts between the sort of like ridiculous goobery humor and these very serious moments in history. And, you know, part of that may stem from uh, the writers being kind of like, you know what, this is traumatic. People are going to joke. It's how we handle things. Because I have noticed that that has been a sort of major theme of the Umbrella Academy throughout, really. Um, I think it's also possible they were given show notes about it, but this really seems like a, a kind of tonal balance that was talked about in the writer's room. And it makes me wonder, too, with the teaser we were given about season three, there may have been more of an effort to joke in season two because season three will be much, much darker than this season was. I have some thoughts on what they're going to do, and we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about Klaus, because I skipped Klaus and I feel bad. I love Klaus. Um, I'm going to say I think he probably got the worst end of the stick on this one. Um, Klaus in season one was an incredibly compelling character, and he's kind of a joke character in this one. Klaus is sort of a goober who's on vacation in this one. And (sighs) there's like one scene that really stands out to me between him and Allison where Allison just jumps into the pool that he's sitting in, which I utterly loved. Um, I think that's a really great scene and it's very easy to sort of, you know, gloss over, glance over. But other than that, I mean, he's really kind of there for laughs. Like this is almost uh, the writers getting back at Kloss for his narcissism. And there are moments that are compelling. They're the moments that are shared between him and Ben where Ben is really upset with him for, you know, like, uh, going to talk to that young guy who gets killed in Vietnam. I can't remember the guy's name. Dave. Dave. Yeah, there it is. Thanks. Uh, And Klaus is like, I'm trying to save this guy's life because he's going to die from this. And sitting in in the car with the can of paint. And that, to me, was one of the most compelling moments for Klaus in the season. And there just was not... 
um, there wasn't a lot more of yeah, that. Yeah, th- there's a little bit here and there. Yeah. I think Ben got much better this season, and we'll talk about Ben in we a should, second. Yeah. But Klaus definitely suffered, and I think like all the shots came out in season one. Because I think one thing about Klaus, and I think this is kind of like a writing conceit thing, is his whole gimmick is about ghosts and the dead and the past. So when you put him in a modern setting where you have all these established characters who are in the place that they're supposed to be, he's got dirt on all of them. He knows a lot of secrets. There's a lot of like tension going on. He works so well in that because they were talking about the dead, you know, summoning up the ghosts of Reginald Hargreaves. Great stuff in there. However, um, when you take him into a fish out of water kind of situation, you kind of take that ammunition away from him. Um, and in many ways, um, he was haunted in season one, um, particularly by Dave and the whole Vietnam thing. Like, that was such a great sequence. It's a really fantastic arc. Um, the whole thing with Dave, it was beautiful. I just really, truly love that. And the whole sobriety as a metaphor for being able to connect to the past. Great. And they really throw that out the window here where he's still doing ghost shit after going on a huge fucking bender. Mm, yeah. Like, that was a huge... Like, that's like... I don't like cinema sin style nitpicking, but that is an actual plot hole. Yeah, that's very true. But that's very whatever. True. Just... Also, how do you say Klaus? 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 Is it is it Klaus? Okay, because you've been saying like Klaus. Sorry. It's it's Klaus. Sorry, weird. Okay, sorry. No, it's just me. <laughs> that no, was probably great. Like, I'm surprised. That's hey, all. you know what? This is the episode <laughs> of mispronunciations. We've had series. We've had class. We've had many things. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Ben briefly, because like he's basically not a character in the first yes. one. He's very much an accessory to Klaus. Yes. Um, he gets a little bit more in this season, and I'm expecting a lot in season three, but I'm not seeing, like, his moment with Vanya is really touching. I actually cried. I did too. It was... Um, and there is this kind of theme going on with this sense of yearning and of being, like, connecting with the world for design, which really connected with me, like, as a queer person who came out later in yeah. life. Yeah is this idea of like this is like that simple shit you didn't appreciate when you were you know dead or alive <laughs> or closeted yeah. you know um some of the stuff like the goofy like pushing yourself in and out of klaus thing that it's a little goofy and it's fun but i don't think it necessarily factors into me being impressed yeah, with the character sure but i like i i i like justin h min in this and I'm excited to see more. Um, definitely, I don't know, that's kind of it, really. There's not too much to say, but he definitely comes out better in this season. So, for me, Ben is actually, uh, as a sort of, like, secondary character, one of the standouts of this season, in part because I was so curious about him throughout season one, and I wanted to see a lot more of him. Um there is a lot more to him and I think they do a good job of pointing to that in this season it made me want to see more of him which I'm looking forward to seeing in the third season um but I like a lot of the moments between him and Klaus where I did it again didn't I did I say Klaus yes you did 
You can Klaus. say Santa Claus. There I'm it just, is. I'm fine with it. I've... Instead of Santa Claus. <laughs> <sighs> this is going to be a fun day. Um, I, I like those moments between them where, you know, Ben is trying to be like, why are you like this, dude? Like, why, why do you keep doing this? This is not working. I like their their sibling fights. Um, you know, the fact that there's a sibling I mean, stuck in many inside ways, him is a lot. Yeah. In many ways, I really like that as a kind of writing conceit. Because basically, when you look at what Ben and um, Klaus have, it's very much a toxic relationship. But Ben doesn't have the option to walk yes. away. Klaus is the only person he can interact yeah. with. So in many ways, he's kind of a hostage. And their relationship isn't great at times, but it develops and it goes into these really nice places. And I like their interplay. And genuinely, like, I'm very sad to see Ben go. Like, that was very tragic. I am too. The thing that I kind of don't like about the character so far is that he's sort of been an accessory to his other siblings and that sort of bugs me because obviously he does get fridged in the season like he dies um like real 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 dies uh but then he comes back for season three so i don't know i'm kind of hoping for the series to sort of redeem itself in season three by giving him the storyline that i feel that he deserves as a character for having been trapped inside of one of his siblings, I want to see what he does um, as an embodied person in the real world. I'm I'm excited to yeah, see that. Yeah, I mean, because that was one thing that kind of sucked is he's kind of the Asian rep yes. in this. And he's very much model minority off to the side. No one has to pay attention to him. Oh, yeah. Thing. No one has Not to take great. his advice. Um, yeah. But that being said, just from the framing of the uh, teaser... I feel like he's going to be the number one of uh, the Sparrow Academy. Oh, he definitely is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So finally, let's talk about Vanya. And oh boy, we got a lot to talk about mm. with Vanya. I think Vanya kicked ass in this season. I think Vanya came Hell out yes. much stronger. Um, because like from what I'm looking at, season one Vanya is kind of a very passive character who is abused and neglected and abused. Like, that's that's kind of her entire thing. And when you take away her memory and put her in the situation, she's doing a lot. She's a much more active character. She's a much more principled character. And, like, um, my, I was watching this with my fiancé, and... Um, she called the like lesbian angle with Sissy from episode one, and I was just like, we were cheering. For oh it. yeah, uh, and Sissy's such a great character too. Sissy is God, I love her. Freaking fantastic, yeah. Such a great character for um, Vanya to connect with. And like Vanya is so much more queer as well. I like that she's much less of a device. Like Va- Vanya just jumped the fuck up the rankings i think in this one yeah like so this one also explores a kind of abusive dynamic in the family with where vanya's placed in a different familial situation where you still have this super dominant patriarch um she's much more willing to do subversive things to uh carry on outside of his purview i love the relationship between her and Sissy and this. I love Sissy as a character. I think she's a wonderful representation of a sort of uh, rural queer woman. 
and what that sort of experience can be like or was like in this particular period. I really appreciated that. Um, one of the other things that I really liked about Vanya in this season was her... She's assertive. She's more assertive than she was in season one, like you were saying. Um, but she's still very open and very empathetic as a character. Um, and I just, I liked a lot of her dynamic with the family. I liked her conversation with Allison in, and Klaus in the bar, uh, Klaus in the barber shop. I liked a lot of that. I'm so sorry I pointed that <sighs> out. I can't stop thinking about it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there's so much to utterly love about Vanya in the season. And, you know, that sequence in the FBI office where she is drugged and forced to endure. That's fucked up. That's It felt like conversion so therapy strategies that I have read about coming from this period and also ones that have been uh, used more recently to force somebody to abandon their uh, identity as a queer person and... I, the moment where that office basically just like evaporates, that inability to contain her power in that scene was just so moving for me. So, yeah, there's so much to love about this character this season. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, kudos to Ellen Page because I definitely get a feeling that she had some sway. She's probably the biggest name here in the cast. And,. I was really kind of on the fence about this through some parts of this season because it feels like it played a lot with gay pain, yes. um, especially once you get past, um, you know, Klaus and Dave meeting in the thing. It's like he punches him in the face. It's like, OK, cool. Like we're like bringing homophobia into this in like a really big way. Yeah. And especially the character of Carl. Carl is nasty. I'm so fucking glad Carl died. But. Like, the influence of having him in the show was a real source of tension. And it's, I guess, good tension in the end, but, like, it was very hard to see, you know. Representation in queer spaces is kind of a difficult topic because the reality is we are persecuted throughout history and society and around the world, and homophobia is a big part of life. And, like, it's not something that we can brush away under the carpet but it's also not something that we want to be the entirety of our representation especially when straight people are writing it um because that exoticizes it makes it like oh being gay is about pain like this is something that genuinely affected me as a child because like even before i had any notions of gender um like you know i probably it's hard to quantify, but, like, I did have some feelings about boys, and it's just like, well, you know, if you're gay, people are gonna be really fucking shitty to you, so you put that in the box, you swallow that down, and then you cut out the piece of colon with a cancer in it 40 years later, because that's how you deal with this oh, shit. Oh, 100%. So, yep. like, gay joy is real, like, queer happiness is something that's important to portray, and so, like, it strikes us really... I think it, in the end it does strike a balance, but there was that tension that I feel like there might have been too much gay pain up until we kind of get through the season. Um, like, because when, when Vanya and Sissy um, get together, it is a really triumphant and jubilant moment. 
And immediately it kind of goes into this denial of, you know, um, Sissy being this put-upon housewife, you know, you're not allowed to have dreams, Vanya being this frustrated modern lesbian trying to say, like, no, we are allowed to be happy. And, like, I was really worried that was going to tear them apart. Then I was really worried that Carl was going to tear them apart. And so in the end, I'm okay with it, but it was a bit of a rough journey to get there. Yeah, and this was something that you and I had kind of texted about because I was also concerned about the sort of focus on the trauma of gay experience. Um, like, as somebody who teaches this history, who teaches about the Lavender Scare and stuff, it is inherent within American history, that pain, that trauma. And one of the things that I appreciated about the series was the way that it captured these sort of minute gestures, these glances... Uh, sort of like stolen moments and also this desire to be part of you know a family unit and just like treating <laughs> treating sissy's son like a real person um when it's very clear that his father does not understand him at all that was also something that i really appreciated uh you know for a child who has super severe autistic symptoms um i yeah i was really worried that they were going to cure his autism i was, I was really i fucking was too and i really that. appreciated that they did not do that that they let him exist as a human being that they showed him love that they showed the difficulties of his experience and of the experience of sissy trying to care for him too that's a very real thing so it, there were just there were a lot of like small moments in this season that I really appreciated because they showed empathy and care for other people, which kind of feels absent from, you know, other superhero series. Yeah, um, I will say this. Um, another thing I really appreciate is that they're an older lesbian couple like um, Ellen Page is like 33, but they definitely like make her more disheveled and I think older looking in this than she does in other work she's done. And, you know, um, Marin Ireland is Sissy Cooper. She's like 40. So like, and th th not only that, but, you know, she's a mother, the way the production design frames her, the way they do the makeup and costume design, because that's one thing you see is like, representation matters not just across like these very strict categorical lines of you know gay straight trans but also like body types like there's a lot of intersection and so on um so you know this idea that you know like and, and this is i think an issue that we see where you know mlm um relationships are shown kind of across the spectrum yeah. you know, you've got the old tired queers you got the totally. young queers but lesbians oh, yeah. are very much you know like 14 to 22 um, young, hip, white lesbians. Oh, yeah. That's kind of the media that's allowed because it's just kind of like, it's the same porn problem. It's like, I don't want to see no gay fucking, but then lesbos can... <laughs> so, like, having a... First of all, like, not just like an older couple, but also like a domestic and like a maternal couple, I think is really great to see in this. Um, I will say this is that I feel like the metaphor gets very thin. Um, 
like you you see this throughout a lot of superhero media. Um, most famously, I think with the X Men, where um, superheroes uh, are this metaphor for oppressed groups and minorities throughout history. Um, you know, Charles is MLK and Magneto is uh, Malcolm X. You know, they've got a lot of that going on. Have you tried just not being a mutant, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so when Ellen is talking about, you know, like who we are isn't a crime, the metaphor is so thin there, but I, I don't mind it at all. Like, that's where I feel like there is a queer voice writing some part of this. Um, I don't know necessarily what the writing credits are for each episode and so on and so forth, but I think very much, um, if I had to guess, Ellen has enough clout that she got in there, she was able to pull some levers, um, maybe she has a producer credit or something, I don't fucking know, but, you know, that's, I, I feel a voice in there, and maybe it's some straight people who managed to hoodwink me, but I don't think so. Yeah, so Ellen Page has actually been doing a lot of uh, queer activism in her film and TV work over the past few years, and I think has been working really hard to drive some change in the way that specifically lesbians are represented. Um, one of the things that I also really appreciate about her, she is from my home province. She's from Nova Scotia. And so, um, like, I know I said it before, but, like, just the representation of queer rural people living in two different rural areas for a large uh, portion of my life, I don't think people realize how important that representation can be for the people who are, you know... <laughs> living out in the cornfields or living close to lobster fishing and other uh, fishing as an industry, having that kind of representation, it really is meaningful. So I'm just kind of appreciative of that. I, I don't want to like overwrite her role in this or anything, but she just seems like a person who would have influence due to some of her previous projects on uh, what LGBTQ life and travel and mobility are like. So I really appreciated that. I think the last thing I want to talk about in kind of, and like, I kind of hate that we're comparing it so much to season one, but it is a yeah, continuous project. Is. And I think it's an important lens to look at this. Um, I want to talk about the antagonist for a second. Um, Hazel and Chacha blow the Swedes out of the fucking water. I don't care about the fucking oh, yeah. Swedes. They look cool. They don't. They literally have, I think, less than ten lines of yeah. dialogue. Like it's all aesthetics. It's very hollow. It rings very hollow for me. Yeah, the, I didn't particularly care about the Swedes. Um, I don't know. They kind of feel like a placeholder villain to me. And they weren't as interesting yeah. for me to watch as, say, you know, a character like Lila, who to me is one of the standouts of that of this season, you know, between her moments in the asylum to the moment shared with her and Diego at that dance where Diego meets his mom um, as a person rather yep. than a robot. Like, there's just so much more going on with her that I'm interested in than what was happening with the Swedes. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, 
Um, Lila is fantastic. Um, so it, I, I feel like you get these kind of tiers of antagonists in this series. You know, you have the foot soldier, then you have the organization. So in season one, the foot soldier is our Hazel and Chacha, and they're amazing. Just like they're really scary. Hazel blew it out of the yeah. fucking water. I fucking love Hazel. Um, f- oh, sorry, Cameron Britton. I fucking oh, love he's him. Great. He was a standout. Kind of sad to see him die in this, but, like, I'm very happy to see that, you know, uh, he and Agnes had, like, a happy life together. That's, that. like, a really wonderful Love epilogue it. for them. Um, That being said, so the Swedes, there, there's not much substance no. to them, but there's a lot of really great aesthetics yeah. to them. Um, like the whole milkman thing. Um, Uga for Uga very was also like, good. <laughs> I like that moment. Yeah. <laughs> I do like them calling Oga for Oga. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> you idiot. It's Swedish. It means eye for an eye. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Have a nice it's day. Such a good Click. moment. <laughs> very good moment. Um, that being said, um, I do actually really like, I heard a rumor you killed your brother. That was a really great scene. And the I think cinematography from that. <sighs> yeah. Um, but it very much played into, I think, like, there's a this kind of history and these tropes of, like, the quiet psychopath, yes. I guess. yeah. And the whole, like, self-hating, I will cut off the hand that killed my brother. That was a little bit yeah. much. But I still, I, I, I still think they did a good job of what they were trying to do. Like, I don't want to take away from the actors for that in any way. It's just that they were very underwhelming from a writing perspective. Um, whereas then you get to the upper, more upper tier where in season one, you had the handler who was the management villain. And in season two, you have Lila and the handler. And I think the handler was much more compelling in season one. I think so too. Um, In season two, she goes from being this woman who, you know, like drops her coat, (laughs) expecting somebody to pick it up to you know, being dressed up as almost like a Tsarina, like, you know, um, from the last dynasty of Tsars in Russia, that's a fantastic costume and I think a great moment. And it really shows her kind of like desire for autocratic power. But she comes off as kind of like a, a psychopath with amazing outfits. <laughs> rather than you know yeah, she i feel like she's very flanderized in the second season very much so um yeah whereas lila is this more complex foil yeah. to five and somewhat villain not villain in her own right uh like she's a complicated character i don't think she necessarily fits yeah. into this um the the handler in the first season is a ruthless conniving bitch mm mm-hmm. mhm in season two, she's Cruella de Vil. Yeah. She is an old, haggard woman, past her prime, mm. dressed up in finery that does not make her... Like, it makes her refined, but not beautiful, I think okay. is the way to describe it. Okay. Um, the purple coat, in particular, is very pompous. Um, like, she is very much this kind of, like, autocratic, um, dictatorous figure. But whereas I think in the first season, she is this, like, yeah, in this fir- in the first season, she's very clever, very conniving. She's a manipulator. She's an abuser. In season two, she's very much like death of Stalin is, you know, oh, she's such an autocratic, abusive bitch that it's her own downfall. 
And in many ways, I really don't like her in this season because one of the things that I see is I feel like the joke is that she is an old woman and that she is used up and dry. I feel like that is her visual motif, and I hate it. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, so, yeah, and so here's what I kind of got from this season. Like, all of her outfits are utterly stunning and incredible. I loved the outfits that have this sort of, like, uh, corseted waist with it. She really, the, the character design for this season is all about this sort of high opulence of 1960s dress and design. She is haute couture, whereas everybody else is a suit that's bought off a rack. And it's that kind of narcissism, that kind of, you know, sort of haute fashion feeling that she is above everyone else and therefore deserves this kind of ability to rule over them. That somehow confers her with that. I really like... how they communicate that through clothing. And so that's one of the things that I appreciate about her character. I don't get the feeling that this is a woman who is past her prime so much as the feeling that this is somebody who is allowed power to go to their head. And so they're all aesthetics and no substance. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty drastic shift from her character in season one, who I totally agree is conniving and manipulative. Um, to me, this is another stage in her development where she lets her strengths go to her head and that ends up defeating her in the end. So I, I kind of appreciated that about the character. I didn't really get the sort of like ageist metaphor from it. I, I think I got something else. Okay, so one one thing. Okay, so I want to talk about one scene in particular. Yeah. Um, because this is where I feel like I drew a lot of this. Okay. And this is a very striking scene upon me. Um, is the scene where she's in the office with AJ in the bowl and she's getting dressed up. And this is very particular costume with like, you know, the kind of like lattice work, very... Um, who's the architect who did Millennium Park? Oh, I don't remember. Oh, it's driving me nuts. <laughs> we'll, we'll remember later. Um, but like... Yeah, no, obviously. Um, but like with the shoulder pads and the um, like kind of like, I guess like lattice or um, rigging over her yes. chest and so on, where it felt like, I understand her culture is not necessarily like, oh, make the woman look sexy. I, I fucking get that. But the way that she was presented, um, the kind of close-ups and the overall framing of that kind of showed me like what I think the impression I got from that costume and especially how long they spent in that costume getting dressed and being dressed by others and it not necessarily... Like, cause you can contrast that with other costumes she wears, like the, like the kind of like dress suit she wears when she goes to kill everyone with an Uzi, or like the kind of like bodice piece that she has in the hotel room with Lila. Um, there's this very contrast where those are, I think, more like you know, quote unquote, naturalistic and embracing her feminine beauty. This one feels like constructing something around. Oh no, it's her architecture. That is yeah. supposed to be a facsimile. Yeah. It's it's architectural. So in that way, she feels very old Imperia, yes. very. She's you know, the ancien regime, like, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's where I feel I get that impression from, where she's not supposed to be beautiful so much as fallen grace. And I don't like that, considering also that when you look at her character being Flanderized, it is this 
kind of parody of what her power would be. It is without the grace or the cunning or the conniving the gutter where she is. It's like this weaker version of the character. So it's weaker and she's presented older. That's kind of where I got that from. Okay. Okay. Because, like, I I, I can vibe with you on most of her costumes, but that costume in particular, um, that one got me. I did not like that costume, and I feel like that was a very big kind of sequence for her. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This may just be a point that we disagree on. I think that, again, I see a lot of the, the fashion choices in this as her deliberately setting herself apart from others and... That particular sequence with her dressed up almost like a Tsarina is very much a separation of herself from the rest of the people around her. She is socially isolating herself further and further throughout the series um, to kind of take power. I don't know, there there certainly could be a, a kind of ageist trope in that that I'm missing. I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm sure that's something that might come out a little bit later. Uh, But for now, part of what I see is her as a sort of representation of a a really older model of rule and a a kind of authoritarian rule, the sort of divine right of kings. Um, And I see that coming out in a lot of the fashion choices. Annie, that's my phrase. I know. I'm (laughs) the one who says divine right of kings. Um, No, that's that's fair. Um, And I think the last thing we want to talk about because i feel like we've kind of established the structure of this one we're just talking about people between season i want to talk about reginald hargreaves fuck reginald hargreaves i cannot believe how well they pulled him off in this because he like he he was very much a shadow of a character like he he was an empty space he was a grave that was the whole thing is they are looking at in season one the shadow of Reginald Hargreaves, the gap he leaves behind. And that gap is filled with nothing but abuse and torment and neglect. And it's all these characters dealing with that. And the fact that we managed to bring Reginald Hargreaves into being alive and being just as much of a bastard and just as much of a monster as we expected is an incredible yeah. feat, really. That's it. That's pretty much my comment. It's, <laughs> that's it's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Like, the fact that he can domineer his children without knowing a thing about them and play on their very specific insecurities is just, is just choice. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, he was just stunningly awful <laughs> as a, a person in this season. Um, you talked about him in season one as being kind of a blank space. And really, for me, what I saw was a sort of portrait on mm-hmm. the wall where the viewer of the portrait is reading all these different qualities into the portrait sitter. And we get that sort of feeling from all of the memories that the different Umbrella Academy members have with Hargreaves, which is one of the things that I really valued about that first season. I think that's a great way to frame the story. In this season, though, we have a really interesting development because Hargreaves at one point takes off his human face mask and puts it on a table. Which is really funny because he still has he still has his face in the afterlife. So it's like, okay, hold up a fucking second. That's commitment right there. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't exactly. care, though. That's the, that, that doesn't really bother me. I just think that's a little funny. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they'll bring it up um, in season three again or something. To, But it's, it's a nice yeah. detail. Also, Pogo's a space monkey. Yes. Ooh. We probably could have guessed, honestly. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it's also... 
I, I, I have to say, standout moment, amateur. <laughs> yeah, that was a really good moment. It's very good. Now, um, I, I do think it's fantastic. And I'm very excited to see where season three goes. I think that's kind of my conclusion Same. with this is like, so I, I want to talk about season three briefly. Because season one was very much this kind of establishing thing, this setting up of the characters and dealing with Reginald's neglect. Season two seems to be this kind of lighter tone and this more historical kind of shake up with the time travel. So I'm expecting with season three to be dark, with this whole alternate universe thing. What I'm really expecting out of this is it's going to be dark in kind of a YA kind of way, which I'm very excited for, actually. That's kind of just the like aesthetically the vibe I get from the Sparrow Academy, um, the choice of um, I guess word you know the Umbrella Academy is this kind of esoteric thing, whereas the Sparrow it's this idea of like you know small but quick. It 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 gives me that it, it's weird to me like I'm picking up on a lot of like really subtle aesthetic things and how they presented that, but I think it's going to be hungry. That's kind of the vibe I get. And I think the conflict I see coming up is this idea of a more ruthless group that was more closely molded to Reginald's design versus these maladjusted weirdos who survived him. That's what I'm seeing, and I'm very excited for it. I'm hoping it's everything I envisioned. And if it's as good as season two, I'll still be happy to see it. Any closing thoughts, Annie? Yeah, I mean, regardless of how critical we've been of this season, it was extremely enjoyable. And if you're looking for something to watch right now and you've gotten tired of everything else, The Umbrella Academy is something that you really should revisit. I would recommend starting at season one and watching through to season two as well. It's just, it's a good time for the humor that they have. It's a good time for the stories that they're trying to tell about people caring for one another. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the third season. Yeah. Anyways, uh, this has been the Movie Mark, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Jess Whitmore. You can follow me on Twitter at Jessica on Main. You can also follow me. I'm back on Twitch, baby. Twitch.tv slash Quasinim. That's Q-U-A-S-I. NYM. Yeah, I had to hesitate on that one for a second. Uh, Annie, where can people find you on? The uh, well, <laughs> I lost the password to my Twitter account, so it's been inactive for a while. No, uh, so no. I'm going to be a lot more active on Discord as a result of that, because I'm just, I'm kind of tired of the Twitter discourse, and it's, it's just more convenient. So I'll see y'all over there. Come visit. Let's chat. Yeah, we have a Discord. The link is in the show notes. Our intro music, as always, is Trouble by Ipso Factibus. Find a link to their album of the same name. Sorry, EP of the same name in the description. Uh, we have a link to our Discord. And, yeah, you guys can follow us on Twitter. We're really bad at keeping the social media. <laughs> We're so bad. Okay, shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no. Um, thank you guys so much. You're all awesome. We love you. Be kind to yourselves and stay safe out there. It's a scary fucking place right now. It is a scary place and a scary time. And we are all looking for ways to support each other. So if you've been kind of trying to figure out how you can help, but you're maybe not sure how to get started, we've left some notes in the show notes for you. 
These will give you ideas about everything from collecting supplies for donation to maybe some funds that you could potentially contribute to, which help to support the struggle for medical and legal protections for trans folks. The funds that we're spotlighting this week are the Black Trans Femmes in the Arts Fund, the Okra Project, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, and the Trans Justice Funding Project. If you'd like to learn more about these organizations and the work that they do, please take a look at the links in the show notes below. And we'll see you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.